Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis. I'm joined alongside Mike McIntyre as we wrap up the second Masters 1000 event of 2022. The Sunshine Double now complete with the Miami Open, where we saw new world number one, Igas Fiontek win the title on the women's side and Carlos Alcaraz electrify and win the trophy on the men's side. Uh, These probably weren't the storylines I was, I guess, anticipating going in Mike, but overall, given that we were missing, you know, all of the big three on the men's side, we had some seeds go down on the women's side. I thought great tournaments uh, for for both fields. Yeah. Youth has been served on uh, both sides with the results here with uh, Sviantec. And Alcaraz, and uh, both exciting for, for different reasons. Uh, Sviantec been on the radar and, and getting results for longer at the professional level, of course. And, um, you know, she's a very likable young athlete. And, uh, and I'm excited to see her here in Toronto later this summer. I was thinking about this. I'm pretty sure she played three years ago, the last time the National mm-hmm. Bank Open was held in Toronto. But obviously, completely different player now, a world number one. And isn't it fitting in the, the week that she takes over from the now recently retired Ash Barty that she delivers and comes up with a number one like result in uh, in Miami? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think a bit of the narrative when she, she, of course, was going to just take over the world number one is in a sense she was being handed the world number one just by a retirement of Ash Barty. But I love the fact that she's playing like one. She's won three consecutive WTA 1000s. No one has ever done that uh, before, by the way, which is uh, historical from her sense. Wins the Sunshine Double, first to do that since Victoria Azarenka. Like she seized and took that number one ranking, uh, finishing this hardcore swing just in incredible fashion. And I'm glad you mentioned when she was actually in Toronto, I believe, 2019? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 2019. Um, her and Naomi Osaka, of course, uh, had a great run to the finals here before losing to Sviantec. They actually played an early round exciting match. I believe it was a night match, and I watched that, and I was so blown away by Sviantec's movement. She was just, you know, 17, 18 at the time, and I thought, like, wow, this girl is impressive. And the story after that tournament was Osaka enjoyed their match so much, Naomi won, uh, that she was excited to hit with Sviantec at the next tournament in Cincinnati because she thought she was such a great player. I forgot about that, and that was uh, Osaka was was number one in the world at that point in time, and she won that match, went on to play Serena Williams, uh, and obviously Serena went on to the the finals that year against Bianca Andreescu. My goodness, I can't believe all that was three years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I was uh, I was just looking and comparing the top ten on the WTA from that last tournament when they were here in Toronto, the women, anyways, and what the top ten looks like today. And oh my goodness, is it ever different? And that just gets me excited for having that top level tennis back in our country to see the changes because the only holdovers from the top 10 uh, that August of 2019 are Sabalenka and Karolina Pliskova. And, uh, and I don't expect Pliskova will still be in the top 10 come August. So just a total change, um, you know, retirements of uh, Kiki Burdens, uh, Serena is kind of MIA at this point in time. So the WTA tour that we're going to see come back to town this summer is going to be so different and yet super exciting when you look at the new faces that are in that top 10 including the newly uh, anointed number one here, Sviantec. 
Yeah, a lot of reasons to, to get down and attend uh, for sure. And just the stretch that Sviantec has been on, we certainly have to talk about um, 17 consecutive match wins. Unbelievable. 20 consecutive sets won, which is just so, so impressive. And you look at some of these score lines, particularly in Miami. First round, Victoria Golubich, a pretty challenging first round opponent. She wins that two in love. She beats Madison Brangle the next round, 6-0-6-3. Coco Goff, 6-3-6-1, 3-3 over Kvitova, 6-2-7-5 against American Jesse Pagula, and then 6-4-6-love against Osaka. I mean, these are very, very dominant score lines. Nobody is really challenging her at this point. Yeah, and she uh, she wins the Sunshine Double, as you mentioned. Did you mention the names that she joins there? I mean, you mentioned Azarenka. No, I just mentioned Azarenka, so you can mention our other names. So we got what, Steffi Groff and Kim Kleisters as the mm-hmm. other women alongside Victoria Azarenka, which is incredible company. Uh, you know, at the high end, you've got Graf with about, what, 20 grand slams. Even on the low end, Kleisters and Azarenka with uh, two, three, four slams each. Um, pretty fantastic stuff. And, uh, you know, Sviantek has shown us in a short period of time that that she's the real deal. And, and now as we transition to Clay, also a surface that she does quite well on. Yeah, and uh, I think, um, I believe it was Courtney Wynn, uh, our WTA insider who we've had on the podcast, uh, pointing out that Spiontek's playing this this fantastic, and now she heads to her favorite s- surface, and I saw Jessica Pagula reply to this tweet something like god help us all <laughs> and of course Pagula was was one of the victims in this tournament from Spiontek's incredible play taking her out in the semifinals. so you think about how confident as a player she's going to be feeling going to that clay court surface where you know I think the women's tour we don't have clay court specialists we say that more often about the men's game where there's noticeable players who are like wow they are particular clay court players. And you'll see that with some of the South American guys or a few Spanish guys. We don't really have that element as much on the women's side, but I find when I watch Iga move on clay, it seems like such a natural thing for her to do um, that her and Halep are kind of the two that always stand out to me when, when the clay season really begins. Right. Right. And uh, you know, you just mentioned her confidence and uh, it's funny. It's a funny thing, her confidence, obviously feeling it on the court in her game. But I really liked in the post-championship uh, press conference when she was asked, when she looks in the mirror in the morning, does she th- see the number one player in the world? Has that sunk in yet? And she says, when I wake up in the morning, I see a mess, basically. So, <laughs> you know, self-deprecating and, mm-hmm. uh, and very modest. And, and I like that about her, too. And, uh, yeah, let's see where she goes from here. Can she consolidate even further this number one ranking? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're right. Great, great personality. I think uh, great for the game right now. We should talk about the finalist, Naomi Osaka. Um, for me, just great to see her not only playing great tennis again, but James Blake highlighted this so nicely in his post-match speech to Osaka. So great to her uh, to see her um, having joy on the tennis court again, looking happy out there. And uh, Osaka was kind of almost tweeting more often than, than we see um, post post-tournament after losing she seems like she has this fresh perspective on life and this is such a quick turnaround from a disappointing tournament in Indian Wells where uh, we know she went out second round to Kudermatova had that incident with the fan heckling her which she did not handle well so for her to just flip the script I think so quickly uh, make the finals of Miami where she's played 
very well in the past, won the title before, uh, a really, really great sign. And then post-match as well, after losing the final, highlighting some big-time goals that she has. She says she still wants to get back to top 10. She wants to be world number one by 2023, she said. And she says she really, really wants to improve her game on the clay and the grass. Yeah, the women's game and the sport of tennis overall is so much better with Naomi Osaka in it. And uh, I mean, who knows? I'm not ready to say, you know, that's it. All of her struggles are, are behind mm-hmm. her and she's never going to have any, you know, challenges in terms of her, you know, mental well-being and how she's feeling at tournaments, dealing with the press or dealing with, you know, jerk fans like that one in Miami. Uh, you know, for her, it could be a, a back and forth kind of up and down uh, process going through her career in, in terms of how she deals with things. But it's so nice to see her at present time seemingly positive. And, uh, and, and doing well, this kind of result is definitely a result that, uh, you know, we've become accustomed to seeing from her on hard courts over the years. And, you know, perfect, personally speaking, I'd love to see her win a slam this year because that would make it a fifth, fifth straight year for Naomi Osaka winning a grand slam. And that is a feat that puts her into a pretty special category when you look at women who've done that in the past 20 years, even there's only, you know, two or three of them. Yeah, yeah, that would be a very illustrious company and uh, good wins for her this week. Like a very tough opener. You, you look at, we, we've talked about because of her struggles and missing some time, her ranking significantly dropped, um, that she has to be playing someone like Angelique Kerber in the very first round. So that's very difficult. Her, she comes away like comfortably in that one, 6-2, 6-3. She got to walk over the following round, but then beats Alice Risk, Danielle Collins, who was dealing with an injury in that match, but still 6-2, 6-1, a big-time scoreline, and then battled past uh, Belinda Bencic in a great semifinal, which she wins in three sets and said like that match was very helpful for her because she hadn't felt some of those like pressure situations in quite a while when you're deep into a third set you need a big serve you're facing a break point and she came through that and uh and makes the final so i i think she's really well on her way i'm excited uh, to see what's in store for her on clay and when you see someone like that come back and and have a great tournament even after things not really clicking for the last little while it makes me think of our Canadian Bianca Andrescu, who I would love to see sort of, and I'm, you know, not purposely putting pressure on the shoulders here, but it'd just be great to see her come back. And yeah, I may take a few tournaments, of course, but I think she has that Osaka quality within her to find her top groove quicker than most players and to get back to that level. We saw it a year ago um, in, um, in Indian Wells, where she made the finals to Ash Barty. Uh, and, and it had been a while since she'd, you know, shown us that level. So We've seen some clips of her on green clay on hard true practicing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that means I got to think that's got to mean we see her at some point during this clay court season. And uh, she's always been very comfortable on the clay. And I just, uh, you know, just making that connection between what we've seen with Osaka and, uh, and our Canadian who I'd love to see something. I'd love to see her come back and experience a a positive return of the game more than anything, whether that's wins or just feeling good and comfortable out there uh, again in front of the crowds. Yeah, definitely. And I I think she's someone who will be readily embraced by the crowd too, who's always a fan favorite as well. Um, When she plays, not just in Canada, all around the world, when when Bianca's competing, she has a strong fan base. Should note as well, she posted that uh, her authored children's book, BB's Got Game, is also released. Uh, I love the cover. It looks really, really nice. She posted that on her social media. I also saw a post of uh, her at the Rafa Nadal Academy. So I believe she's there now training, which is a good sign that, yeah, she is ramping up. I think we will see her 
uh, back on the clay courts. I just don't have a time frame, so I'm not going to take a guess as to when that will be. Uh, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You brought up Serena Williams being MIA. I'd love to see her back on a tennis court. We did see her at the Academy Awards, and of course, we saw a big time night um, from the film King Richard. We gave our review, uh, you know, months back when we saw that film, but. Um, you brought up the point ahead of this podcast. You're fearful. Will Serena make a return at all? Yeah. I mean, it's just been so long since we've seen any clip of her, even on a tennis court practicing, even hitting a few balls on a tennis court with her daughter. Um, you just sort of wonder where she's at. We haven't seen her since Wimbledon last year, which is, you know, going on many, many months at this point. And She's been doing the award shows, and I'm not knocking her for doing that. The film was terrific. The film is about her, her sister, her family, her father, clearly, as the title uh, shows us. Uh, so, you know, nothing against her doing those award shows, but I just feel like it, it almost seems like she's shifted the focus, and I don't see any tennis in the picture. And I want to see tennis in the picture. I want to see her back on a court. And I wonder, is it because the hamstring issue, you know, never fully healed? Is it because she's just decided, hey, at this point in time, I'm shifting focus to other things. I'm moving on. I'm turning 41 this year. What left do I have to prove? And and how tough a transition it might be to basically come back yet again onto the tour. Yeah. And at that age, I mean, I can attest it for you. It's not as easy. Nothing's as easy as it used to be. And I think also her daughter's four years old now. And, you know, uh, it's a fun age to have a kid. And I couldn't think of leaving my kids who are just slightly older than that uh, for weeks on end to travel. I want to be at home. I want to be taking them to school. I want to be hearing about their day and taking them to their activities. And I, you know, Serena's a terrific mom. We've seen that, you know, evidenced over the, the years in terms of all of her posts and, and how close they are, obviously, and what a tight knit family. Maybe it's just time for that. And she shifted gears. But I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm mistaken. Uh, because I do want to selfishly want to see her back on the court one last time in person. I want to get another chance to talk with her and engage with her in press. I'm not ready to uh, to let that go yet, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think every tennis fan selfishly wants to see a return of, I mean, the two names that are top of mind when we talk about this, like, is this the end or not, is Serena Williams and Roger Federer, right? And we, we've seen, I think, a few training videos here and there from Federer that I, I've heard he's been practicing and trying to ramp up his body, unclear when he would make a return. I mean, if I were to guess his perfect sort of dream comeback for 2022 would, you know, maybe play Hala and then play Wimbledon. Um, I, I don't see him. There's just no chance. I think he plays the French open again. Um, I would guess he never plays the French open again, unfortunately, but can he make one more return and play uh, Wimbledon, his greatest tournament? And then you think about Serena as well. I feel the same way about clay and her chances of coming back feel very low, but can she make one final push just to almost say goodbye even. And I think the spot for her to do that would be if it's not Wimbledon U S open um, where she's, you know, dominated for so many years, seven titles there. So I, I hope it's not retirement. Like you want to, I think fan fans all want to have that chance to, to say goodbye um, and be aware that this is the final time you're seeing that athlete. So I hope that is the case that we get through uh, Serena and Roger Federer and Venus. Actually, I should mention Venus Williams as well. We haven't seen her on a tennis court for a long time either, but uh, no retirement announcement of any kind. Right. And, and Roger Federer, maybe that we'll use that to segue over to the ATP tour. Mm -hmm. How cool would it see, be to see Roger Federer have a match against uh, a certain Carlos Alcaraz? Because, oh, my God. 
my goodness. I mean, it might not work out so well for Roger, given the way this kid plays and just how intense and dialed in and, and lethal he looks like on a tennis court. But I always enjoyed when one generation was just emerging, when one new talent was coming out. I like to see them against, you know, that that last aging group before they left, you know, like Agassi and Federer. I always really enjoyed those those yeah. battles. Um, wouldn't it be cool to see them play each other, maybe on grass even, and and see how Feder and all of his experience against the young up and coming talent. And uh, I'll let you get us started on Carlos Alcaraz because we've seen some pretty incredible stuff from him over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been an absolutely electric run. I threw through this sunshine double for for Carlos Alcaraz, and now he's the youngest ever champion at the Miami Open, still 18 years old and hoisting this title. I, I think Blair Henley said it best a few weeks ago when we had her on the podcast um, for Indian Wells when she referred to Carlos Alcaraz as a rock star. And at that time, he had just made the semifinals of Indian Wells. He hadn't won this title, but he had won the Rio Open. Um, now we go into April. Carlos Alcaraz is 18-2 and two with two titles and a Masters 1000. Um, winning that Masters 1000 in Miami, a youngest to do so um, before Djokovic, actually, who did it very early in his career in 2007. And just what a spectacular, uh, astonishing run. I mean, for me, it really kind of got in the groove in his round of 16 matches playing Stefano Tsitsipas. He was trailing five to two in the first set and then just hit this other gear. Like you couldn't believe Tsitsipas wasn't playing poor tennis. It was like the racket was taken out of his hand and Alcaraz was just like a rocket ship and uh, soared to a seven, five, six, three win. For me, the match of the tournament was maybe his victory over Miomir Kekmanovic in the quarterfinals, which was 7-6 in the third. Then he beats Hubie Hurkacz in the semis. And then, um, you know, credit to Kasper Ruud for an incredible finals run. I don't think we'd ever picture a finals run in a Masters 1000 coming first on hard court for him. Uh, but Alcaraz proved just, just too much, too strong. And it's scary. Like, how good can he become given he feels like one of the best players in the world already? So first of all, I want to say your rock star comment. Uh, he's going to have to grow his hair a little bit longer to uh, <laughs> yeah. to live up to the rock star image. But the way that he got the crowd in Miami going definitely had a rock star vibe to it because those crowds were electric. And I was just loving watching this. And it's like, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, when the big three retire, men's tennis is going to be in shambles. I yeah. always like to look at the glass half full. And when I see him and what he was doing with those crowds, I'm like, yes, it just brought me like this sense of, calm and optimism that tennis is in good hands as tennis is always in good hands as it gets passed down from McEnroe and Borg to Connors to Lendl to Edberg there's Mm -hmm. never it's not like all of a sudden the sport is going to enter some vacuum where no one can can excite us anymore okay yeah that match against Kikmanovic in the quarterfinals um, I can't remember the last time there was a young player that inspired me with such confidence even when he was trailing because I believe Alcaraz was trailing in that final set tie break yeah. and I'm watching it and I'm like, I have no doubt that this kid is going to win this match. And I don't know how, like, I don't know how I had that feeling. Yeah. Was it his body language? Was it what we've seen over the past couple of tournaments? I just knew he was going to get it and he did. And the crowd went crazy and, oh, it just gave me goosebumps for tennis, man. You know? 
Yeah, it, it was just unbelievable the number of highlight real moments that he has in in all shapes and forms too. Whether it's like ripping a massive forehand winner that's like sizzling at 110, 110 miles per hour, or it's chasing down and hitting a tweener lob over somebody's head. I mean, he's already this human highlight reel. He's not even nineteen years old yet, and it, it just feels like he's. I don't want to overhype someone, but it feels like the level he's producing on the tennis court. I look at that next gen crop that we would talk about with, uh, you know, Tsitsipas, Verev, and um, others, even Dennis and Felix are probably in there. It feels like he's supplanted them with the quality of tennis he's showing on the court. And now we have the clay season coming along. I mean, name a more confident player going into the clay than Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah, well, look, I'm getting ahead of myself here, of course. It's hard not to when you get excited about an emerging talent like this. But all those other players you just named there, they almost remind me of that, like, late 80s, early 90s group where there was a real, like, you know, brotherhood of players who could trade slams and be in the mix and be in the top 10. But then I see an Alcaraz and I'm like, whoa, could that be a guy that, like, grabs the reins? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just takes control. And that's the vibe I get from him. And as Rafa said, uh, or was quoted as saying, he's got all the ingredients to make a good salad. And yeah. um, I really like that one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fitting coming from Rafa because he, you know, not just because he's Spanish, but he gets me hyped up like Rafa did back when I saw him for the first time in Montreal in 2005, seeing what he could do on the hard courts. And there's some parallels there for sure. Uh, very excited to see what comes next. And uh, I mean, he's a Spaniard with clay court tournaments coming up next. So that's got to bode pretty well too, you'd think. Yeah. Um, look out is, is all you can say. He already has four top 10 wins in 2022. Like he's winning all these matches. It's not like he's competing in these ATP 250s and, and beating guys like from 50 to 100. He's, he's taken out all the best players, basically. I mean, and you think about Nadal's season and what he's put together before losing in that Indian Wells final to Taylor Fritz. He needed three very difficult sets to get past Carlos Alcaraz. Like he's really him and Matteo Berrettini, the only two players to have stopped him this season. Berrettini needed five sets at the Australian Open to do it. And then he actually got Berrettini back at the Rio Open, beat him there. So uh, already avenged that loss. I, I just think he's he's scary good. He's a phenomenal athlete. And just like I think the most exciting thing we've seen in tennis in quite a long time. I want to just point out Casper Ruud, who uh, I had the privilege of chatting with at the National Bank Open last season, talked about his prowess on the clay. He's moving up to world number seven with this finals run at a hard court and just proving to be more than a clay court specialist had a big win over Sasha Zverev here on on route to the final and I thought he carried himself very well through the tournament I felt like I was watching the final and and almost felt bad in a sense for Rude who's a very good sportsman and a good player and you just had like 99% of the crowd support for Alcaraz yeah and I think it was our Twitter poll that you put up on at match point can that asked ahead of time who people thought was going to prevail and Alcaraz got what over 75% I think Mm -hmm. of the the votes and that's certainly where I was leaning as well you almost felt like Rude had made his big achievement to get to the final and that Alcaraz had that one other uh you know rung to climb on the ladder um you did speak with Rude last summer and uh I mean at the time did you get the sense that he was potentially on the verge of a a bigger breakthrough on the hard courts like this I didn't then I I did like how he was humble 
confident and humble and just knew he had to improve in all areas and facets of his game. And he was already sort of discussing in our conversation that transition to hard courts where he said, like, I'm working every day to become more comfortable on this surface. I think I can play well on this surface. I know I have to change things tactically. And then actually later that season, he won his first ever ATP 250 winning San Diego, I think his first ever hard court title. I mean, he has seven ATP titles already in his career, which is very, very impressive. Only 23 years old. And um, I, I know this season he set a goal to make quarterfinals of, of a slam as well. Uh, so if he's making finals of a Masters 1000, I think that bodes really, really well that he's going to be even more confident with clay around the corner that if I'm making like a top six list at the French Open, he's probably in there. Right, right. And, and one player, uh, just to move on a little bit here, one player who will not be on that list would be Daniil Medvedev, who's mm. opted to undergo uh, what he called a small procedure uh, for a hernia uh, and, uh, and will miss one to two months of action. Uh, not terribly surprising to me that if he was dealing with something that was kind of nagging, now's the time for him to get that worked on because in five previous appearances at Roland Garros, it wasn't until last year that he advanced past the first round where he made the quarterfinals. He also went one and two on clay last year at the Masters 1000 level. So not someone who is necessarily going to be the biggest threat on the red dirt. And uh, obviously we wish him a speedy recovery, but it uh, doesn't shock me that this is the time he would opt to have that done now that Miami's over. Yeah, wise wise decision, I think, for Danil. And we'd seen kind of a dip in form, I think, from him after making the, that Australian Open finals run. And it's interesting in this sport how we almost have short-term memory. Nobody's talking about Daniil Medvedev at all anymore, uh, other than, I guess, revealing the information about his injury. This is a guy who got to world number one, and now suddenly he's kind of being pushed out of the equation a little bit, has a couple tournaments. Well, listen, listen, I, I picked him to go and win Miami in my uh, Tennis Canada bracket challenge. <laughs> yeah. And uh, darn Herbie Hercatch, who uh, ruined that one for me. Her catch, who I picked to go to the finals in Indian Wells, but it didn't happen there. So, you know, this just goes to show you, if we just talk for one short moment about the bracket challenge, yeah, you just never know, right? You pick one week and then it could be the next week it happens for that player. And this is my defense for my overall mediocre showing as I sit 67th on the women's side and 200 and something on the uh, on the men's <laughs> well I fared a little bit better uh, on the men's side but it was a very difficult week for myself as well with the Miami Open and I believe I had taken Medvedev to win as well I expected an Alcaraz Medvedev clash and then Hercat spoiled that we should give him credit he won the Miami Open last year and uh, was able to defend a good chunk of his points by making the semis uh, before losing to to Alcaraz but uh as you said, with Medvedev just hitting on the timing of this injury, one thing we will be missing are the very amusing quotes of frustration when he is on the clay surface. True, you know, true. Talking about rolling around in the dirt like a dog. If you like it, I don't judge you, but uh, we'll miss that. And hopefully he's back, I, I think, for the grass court swing in Wimbledon, where I know he wants to improve upon. But uh curious tournament overall. We talked about the Canadians crashing out early, which was a disappointment. Felix and Dennis both out in the first round. I guess how do they bounce back from really a very poor stretch in the Sunshine Double? Dude, I have no idea. Like, I'm almost afraid to even guess. You know what I mean? We want to see them bounce back for sure. They're both capable of bouncing back on clay. 
Felix especially, who's always proven to be more comfortable overall on that surface. It was a couple of years ago that he made, I forget how many clay court, you know, finals in the early part of the year, albeit smaller tournaments. He's come a long way in two years. So there's no, you know, saying he couldn't have similar results at the Masters 1000 level. But, um, you know, and Dennis, who's not as consistent on clay, but has had big results on the surface as well over the years. If he gets hot, can certainly do it. But right now, after a strong start to the year from both, uh, my confidence in both of them is a little bit lower, but maybe that helps them sort of go in with lowered internal expectations and and they can surprise us at some point here. Yeah, and look, I think Felix Ojeda-Yassim actually is entered into the ATP 250 in Marrakech, and his clay court swing will begin uh, this upcoming week. He's the number one seed there. It's a bit of a lighter field. My thought when I saw him enter this field as the number one, I think he's probably pretty ticked off with how he how he fared at Indian Wells in Miami. He's probably pretty disappointed. Thought, given the tennis he had played from the uh, first two months of the season, he could have done some serious damage there. Didn't. And he wants to get back on the court in another tournament and uh, chalk up some wins. So maybe, um, maybe a pissed off Felix is a good thing. I've never really seen him pissed off <laughs> we don't really see them but maybe in, internally he's kind of ticked and uh, i can, can see him pretending around. to be pissed off i don't know if yeah. i can actually <laughs> see it for you know for real yeah uh, he's just such a nice dude um but uh yeah whatever it takes you know to motivate themselves and uh you know the transition to clay in the beginning there's often results that aren't uh, to be expected um how do you find it? I mean, you're more of the tennis player between the two of us. I don't mind saying that because it's true. How do you find it when you transition from hard courts to clay courts? Is it easy for you? Do you find it takes a little time to get your groove there? Uh, definitely a little bit of time. And I haven't played clay courts probably in a couple of years. But uh, when we used to go down to Florida as a family um, over winter break, I'd get to play on generally green clay courts for a couple weeks time and always just kind of adapting to the different bounces and realizing what works and what doesn't. I remember like my brother and I always kind of have a, a strong rivalry when we play because uh, he's a good player as well. And we get pretty competitive and, you know, I hit a lot of flat serves when I play on hard court and I'm hitting these flat serves on clay to my brother, like thinking I'm putting pretty good pop on them. And he's just like smoking returns past me and at my feet doing it for three straight games. And then like we, we go and, and break for water. And he was like, why are you hitting flat serves on clay? Like that sits up like right in someone's strike zone. You got to spin, you got to hit spin serves on clay. And I was like, Oh, of course, of course. So just not, not thinking of those little things. I mean, the pros aren't going to make those mistakes, but it is always a bit of a, a tough transition. I find the first, uh, you know, two, three days, and then maybe you get a little more comfortable. And uh, I did manage to learn how to slide on clay. Once you figure it out, it can be very, very fun. All these pros kind of know how to do that, but yeah, it's it's a change for sure. Yeah, I grew up on both in Montreal as a kid. My local club I had four hard courts and about twelve uh, green clay courts, so I was comfortable on both. You know, as a, as a ha the hack that I was, but enjoyed both. Definitely enjoyed the the sliding on the clay. Nowadays, I play more on the hard courts just because you know they're easier to find, especially the public yeah. courts. I don't have a membership right now, but uh, living here in Mimico, which is basically south of Etobicoke, for those who aren't familiar, in Toronto. Um, and I just named like three levels of neighborhoods, but anyways, uh, within the city here, but we've got the Mimico tennis club, which has three uh, red clay courts 
And uh, this year I finally was like, yes, I'm going to go for a membership after the last few years being so busy with my kids. I'm like, I finally think I can do it. I've got some buddies that took me as a guest last year. And I went to uh, apply when it opened up and realized not only did I have to go on the waiting list, but they have 800 people no oh joke, my goodness. on the waiting list for like my local club here. And that just speaks to what they said, how popular tennis has become during the pandemic. And I think also a testament to Canadian tennis, just how popular <laughs> It's become with Bianca, Layla Annie, Dennis, and Felix, all these young, talented players that have really put us, solidified us on the map. I mean, Jeannie and Milos put us on the map, but these guys have taken us to new heights. But 800 people, dude, I'm not going to be a member at the Mimico Tennis Club until I'm probably in my 60s or something or ready to <laughs> retire from playing tennis, you know? Yeah, no, I, that's that's one of a number of stories I've heard about local clubs uh, having growing huge, huge waiting lists, especially some popular ones downtown in the city. So it's exciting to hear that um, ones outside and just in the GTA are that popular and that growing. Um, speaks to the fact maybe we even need more, more tennis clubs and more tennis centers. And I think they're coming. That's going to be a big investment uh, of course for tennis canada uh, in that process so should mention as well just on the women's side we have the charleston open as well upcoming this week beginning of the clay court season where layla annie fernandez is seated seventh and then the field plenty of good players arena sabalenka she's seated number one she'll look to bounce back after a tough miami open uh, layla as we know lost early in the miami open to carolina carolina mukova so I think she's comfortable on the clay. I'm excited to see her there. Reminder, it feels like ages ago that she was a junior French Open champion, but I think that bodes well to her chance on this surface. So someone to watch there as well. And that was only, what, three years ago? I think 2019 she won the yep. junior French Open. Uh, her sister bowed out, I believe, in qualies in Charleston. Yes, yes. she got correct. a wild card to play in qualifying and, and lost, but uh, still a good opportunity, I think, to get that match experience at, at a level like this at a WTA 500 against, you know, quality, quality opponents. And she's still very young. Carol Zhao as well was in qualifying. She did win her first round of qualifying before losing to American Robin Anderson. So uh, she's still competing hard, which is nice to see as well. And uh, we should also say on the women's side before we wrap that we're just over a week away from uh, Canada's Billie Jean King Cup team. Did I get that right? I think so. Yeah, you did. From uh, taking to the court in Vancouver. And um, you'll be speaking later this week with team captain Heidi Altabak. And uh, we hope to have some of the players the week after that as well, either before or during or maybe after hopefully a successful uh, tie out west. Yeah, yeah. And great roster. Layla will be out west. Rebecca Marino, Zhao, Gabby Dabrowski, uh, Francois Abanda. So a, a very strong powerhouse squad. Uh, if you haven't got your tickets already to, to see it, there's still some available. So uh, so if you are out west, do check it out. We'll follow the action as well. I just want to add in, we still have an ongoing giveaway uh, on Matchpoint Canada. Last week, we had guest Rob Steckley and his brand, Hopeless Talent, has some gear to give away. You just have to DM us the code word, hopeless. You have one more week uh, to get in the code word for a chance to win that gear. Um, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. Guys, chat with you next time. <laughs>